psychological element to getting back to sport is something that is not really considered. That process of returning back has multiple different emotions and, and thoughts. Hi, and welcome to another episode in this difficult second series of 80% Mental, the podcast where we discuss all things related to the psychology of sport and performance. Today's episode is all about injury. And luckily, this is a non-visual medium. Otherwise, I'd be showing you pictures of like really gruesome injuries. But it's a podcast, so I'll spare you that. But you know, if you're into that sort of thing, Google's free. Um, as usual, I'm joined by Hugh Gilmore. Hugh, how have you been? What have you been up to? Uh, things have been good. Uh, I suppose season two has uh, been interesting so far, and uh, I think uh, I'm still living off the high of season one and what we managed to achieve. Now that we're bases accredited, um, so that's uh, that's fun that we're being recognised for that. So uh, I hope all the listeners who are doing their SEPAR process enjoy this podcast. Um, I've got a lot of uh, I've got a lot of personal gain out of this podcast. That's the compete because. I think I must be the most injured person uh, that's ever been a sports psych. Uh, I've seen my own kneecap twice um, and regularly sprain ankles. I've broken three arms. Um, and you've, bro- ankles you've broken as well. three arms? Yeah, broken three arms. So, yeah, I- I'm really looking forward to this because I think I spent most of my life injured. Um, so, yeah. What about you, Pete? How have you been? Yeah, I'm all right. Um, I've I've moved locations again because my house has been a building site for the last four months. So I wanted to spare our listeners the sound of uh, people uh, taking my house to bits and putting it back together again. Um, but other than that, yeah, I'm all right. I am enjoying the second series and uh, looking forward to this episode in particular. Um, we've got two fantastic guests on today's show. Uh, and as I said, today's episode is all about injury. Uh, and we normally start off with a question. And then with the help of our guests, we're going to try and answer that question. And today's question is, how can psychology help with my injury? And that's quite a broad question, and we'll get into that uh, a little bit as we go on. But like I said, we've got two fantastic guests uh, today, and I'm really, really pleased that they've agreed to come on the podcast. Uh, first of all, we've got Dr. Mona arvinen Barrow. Uh, and Mona works as an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee specializing in the psychology of sport injury. Uh, she has a, is a prolific publisher. She has over 80 academic articles and book chapters on the topic and 160 plus presentations. And she's also the lead editor for a couple of textbooks, uh, The Psychology of Sport Injury and Rehabilitation and The Psychology of Sport and Performance Injury, uh, which is a, a case-based um, uh, book. Uh, Mona is also a chartered psychologist with a BPS uh, and an associate fellow, a Finnish Psychological Association certified mental performance coach and exercise practitioner, and uh, an Association for Applied Sports Psychology Association um, fellow and approved mentor. So that's quite a long list of accolades you have there, Mona. Well, yeah, thank you. I think it's uh, the fact that I've lived in three different contexts that's kind of like added to the list, really, just by default of living in different places. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for coming on and welcome to 80% Mental. Uh, Thank you. Thanks for having me. And our other guest today is Dr. Damien Clement. Damien is an Associate Professor of Sport and Exercise Psychology uh, and Athletic Training in the College of Physical Activity and Sports Sciences at West Virginia University. 
And apart from his uh, admin responsibilities, Damien teaches undergraduate and postgraduate courses uh, in sport and exercise psychology. And his research focuses on sport injury, uh, an area that he became interested in because of his undergraduate work in athletic training and his experiences as a former college athlete. Uh, Damien, thank you for joining us. Uh, Pete, super excited to be here. Um, looking forward to the discussion with Mona and, uh, and with you guys. So thank you for having me. Fantastic. I'm interested. You said you were a former uh, collegiate athlete. What was your sport? Oh, well, my sport of choice um, was, was track and field, or I guess athletics, if you um, back in Trinidad, that's what we call it. But yeah, <laughs> I used, I used to, to put myself through the quarter mile, um, but um, now it's, I've, got, I've grown a lot now, so now the quarter mile doesn't really seem as bad as it was when I was a, a younger person. But yeah, the, the, the quarter mile was my was my sport of choice. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Okay, well, thank you both for joining us. And as I say, we'll get straight into it. So I guess, first of all, it would be good to get a bit of a sense of just how big a role psychology actually plays when athletes get injured. Um, you know, Hugh mentioned that he's broken three of his arms. Uh, I've you know, experienced injury as well as, as an athlete. So I think we all probably know from experience that it's not as simple as, you know, you get injured, you go to rehab or, or surgery or whatever, get better and everything's fine again. You know, the mind can play a pretty significant role in all stages of injury. And, and I wonder what you guys make of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. It is way more complicated than just getting injured have a surgery, have rehab, and then return to sport. Um, we actually know from nearly about 40 years of research that psychological factors play a role in not only in the injury itself, but like the risk of getting injured, the injury occurrence as well, as well as part of the post-injury process of through the rehab and surgery and the return to sport. Um, quite recently, there was a really excellent meta-analysis done by some of our Swedish colleagues, led by Andreas Iverson, where they analyzed all the existing research from the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. And the research actually support and, and showed a very strong relationship between athletes' history of stressors and then the ways in which they cognitively appraise that situation and then the injury occurrence as well. Um, so in other words, what it really says is that if an athlete has a lot of school or life or work-related stress, they're more likely to appraise the stressful situation of competition or training as stressful, which can then lead to different psychophysiological responses, which will increase the risk of injury, really. Um, so what, what it really says is that it's safe to say that if a person had a lot of stress and felt the pressure pre-injury or during the injury when it happened, these things aren't going away when you kind of then go into the rehab and surgery and recovery. In fact, they probably get a little worse. Okay, so the stresses that people can experience in their everyday lives can almost, you're saying, lead to a, an increased chance of being injured, an increased injury occurrence in itself. And those stresses don't necessarily just disappear when somebody, you know, finds themselves in rehab as opposed to on the playing field. No, it, indeed. Often it's, we kind of see that, and, well, it all comes down to a little bit of a cognitive appraisal and how one sees that injury. Um, it kind of is the whole point of, okay, so I got injured. Will that injury then become a stressor in itself, add to the list of stressors that were already there? Or will it actually give like a, what I would say, a unwanted or wanted needed break from it and say, 
oh, I can breathe again. I don't have to do all these things. So it really depends on the situation. But if there were things that caused the injury, psychosocial factors that caused the injury to happen in the first place, those factors will continue to the post-injury rehab and recovery and so forth. So it's not like, it's kind of like a continuous cycle that it doesn't stop it continues and then how we address it at different points will make the big difference really yeah well i, I think we'll, we'll kind of get into the different stages maybe of, of injury and how psychology plays a role as, as we go through but in terms of that initial injury phase a number of authors a number of people have suggested that when we get injured the responses that we have are almost similar to the way that we might experience grief or loss so you know we go through those stages of denial anger bargaining um the other one and uh an acceptance uh, depression and acceptance is that an accurate representation do we think because again you know i think about my experience of being injured and um you know i remember feeling some of those things but is that an accurate representation or is it more complicated than that do we think well, that too is a little bit more complex than that. And I always, um, the DAP that reminds me of the um, three pints of lager and two packet of crisps program. <laughs> they go through that. That's just, that's my British reference that I absolutely love. So it's a little bit more complex than that. And so if we look back on the history of the field, the grief response was the first model that was kind of applied to injury following the development of, hey, there are psychosocial reasons why people get injured. Um, it kind of came as a response to that stress injury model that was 40 years ago. Um, but I think the problem with the grief response models is that just kind of like with any other stage models is that we as humans, we're not the same. We're not linear. You know, we don't go from one, you can't tick a box of, boom, I got my done you know, anger, anger down, or I got my denial mm -hmm. down. And, and I think it's kind of like the, the things have shifted away from that to say, okay, so what, what does the injury mean to the person? So it's not about necessarily about different emotional responses that one goes through, which is what the grief response model is. It's more about what does it mean to me? Is the injury irrelevant or is it small enough just to mean anything? You know, if it's like, oh, it's a little niggle, I can get through this. Or is it actually the welcome break? Or is it an inconvenience? Like, let's say it happens at the time just like two weeks before a major competition or a major some tournament. The, the appraisal that one makes about it can vary quite differently. And also, what are those circumstances that the person is in? So, so the, a lot of the research has moved away from looking at them like stage, like tick a box type of thing to really understanding those cognitive appraisal that one goes through. And depending on those initial rape appraisals, then the person usually goes through a secondary appraisal. That's what we kind of call it is that, okay, so if the injury is seen as an inconvenience, then, okay, so how can I get through this? Is this something that is going to detriment my career or is this actually an opportunity to take a break and really focus on other areas that I normally don't have time to focus on? Um, and those appraisals, depending on what they are, that then leads to different kinds of emotional and behavior responses. Because if somebody says, well, you know, this is it, my career is over, I'm never going to make it to the Olympics because this was my Olympic trial, then the emotional response to that may be like, oh, you know, sadness, anger, frustration, so forth. Mm -hmm. And then the behavior responses follow that may not be something that is then conducive to the rehab. Or if somebody says, you know what, this is no biggie, I know I can get through it, then their emotional responses are going to be a lot more determined, a lot more motivated. And then their behavioral response is like, okay, what can I now do to make sure that I get back? 
So going away from the sort of the, the grief response is that, yes, those, those same emotions and same appraisals that are part of that stage model, they still apply, but really they all depend on how that person views this whole injury and how do they want to um, make it better and what, what does it mean to them? Damien, were you ever injured as an athlete? Of course. I mean, who, who, who hasn't really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and kind of how does what Monas just been talking about, how does that apply to you? Were there times when you appraised or thought of injuries in, in different ways during your career? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the, 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 the point in my career that immediately comes to mind is I, I think this was the penultimate meet of our of our um, spring season so the next week we were supposed to go to our conference meet and i had the race of my life i think that's the best it was a home meet so you know we didn't really get a lot of meets at home in front of our home crowd so mm -hmm. I, I ran that 200 meters like i mean i felt michael johnson like it was <laughs> that's that's to show you how i felt and i um I won the race and I came across the finish line and, you know, I, I was in the flow. I felt it. I'm coming down the home stretch. I'm here in the crowd and I'm just moving. And I felt a, I, I felt a little twinge in my hamstring. And I was like, you know what? This is going to be the first race I was actually going to win for the season. And I crossed the line and I was happy. Set a meet record. Everything was good. And then I immediately began thinking, Next week is the conference final. I just won this race, but I got injured. And the likelihood of me being able to recover from a hamstring injury in mm -hmm. six days, that <laughs> that reality set in after the adrenaline um, had, had died down. And I remember that was a dreadful week. That, and I mean, I, I I was able to compete in the in 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 the region in, in the conference final, but I was nowhere near what I would have been, mm -hmm. and it, it it had an effect. It, so it, it carried on that whole week. Just you know, the, to go from the joy of winning, and then reality sets in, and you start thinking, yeah, but I can't. I'm not going to be anywhere near my best next week. So um, yeah, it it it, it hurt. Yeah, a whole kind of range of emotions in a very short period of time, I guess. And I bet you were probably thinking as well, I I, I might be able to race. I, you know, I, I, probably, I could do it. I, yeah, uh, it <laughs> went from one end to the other. Yeah. And, you know, looking back on it, I could have done so many things, some things differently to, to, to better handle that situation. But young... And, you know, I tell people right now, I think I can be a better athlete, even as old as I am now, just because I have my psychological mindset is so much different now. Yeah. And I understand things a lot better. But um, but yeah, went from zero to hero in, in a week. Hugh, what are you making of all of this so far? It's interesting because like Mona's talked about stress and how stress obviously affects the likelihood of injury or risk of injury. And to me, I know to some of our listeners and maybe some of the athletes that are listening, they're probably going like, wait a minute, it's, stress doesn't cause me to go over my ankle. You know, stress doesn't cause me to um, do something silly that caused the injury. But it, actually in a population, it does. So there's this kind of loose connection where stress does affect it. But then 
I'm listening to Damien talking about being at the pinnacle. You know, he's obviously coming up to the end of the season and he's at the pinnacle. He he's because he's in new territory and setting new PBs. His body isn't used to that stimulus, and that's a new stress. And therefore, you know, that's when he's most at risk to injury. And I feel caught because, like, one of the things I say to athletes uh, and to people is that if somebody get it, if you get an injury, something or someone is to blame. It could be prevented, but at the same time, by getting to your very peak, that itself is a risk of injury. So, like, I'm caught between like lowering stress but increasing stress to train, and it's just so messy and big. I, I think you, you, you're totally right about that, um, that it sometimes is that the stress doesn't have to be mental and it doesn't have to be life. It can be actually the physiological stress that one experiences at that moment. And, and maybe the physiological stress and how you cope with that has shifted because you didn't sleep well the week before or before you, because you didn't eat the way you normally do or you didn't hydrate yourself. So, so the stress that we're talking about, even though it has been focused on the psychosocial stress, it actually can be physiological stress that your body just can't handle. Or then the response to that situation is that there is an adrenaline that causes you to lose focus or attentional focus or increased tension in a muscle in a different way that you didn't even realize that was there until it kind of broke, if that makes sense. So, so I think you, you raise a really good point there for sure, um, that it's not always just that we're fully aware of that. And, the, you know, and, um... Now that I'm thinking back to that to that faithful day, Hugh, as you thought about it, you know, put in fact that, you know, that running at a home meet, you have, you know, usually in track and field, you travel all over. So you never really have your home crowd with you and you're peaking and building up for that for the end of the season. And, you know, those are things that you wouldn't necessarily usually construe as stress but they do have an impact. And, you know, you talk about the literature talks about positive stress and negative stress. And you never really want to have too much of any, um, you know, and all those things, all those little things, you know, Mona is talking about the sleeping and the eating and, 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 and you know, academics and school and, you know, all these little things just kind of add up. And it all comes down to how we, um, I don't think I was mature enough to be able to appraise those situations as a, as, as a, as a youngster. Um, but, you know, some of the things that Mona talked about is how we appraise those situations and you want to look at the coping resources that you have around you. Those are some of the things that, that, that can help mitigate that stress just a little bit that we can use to help um, decrease that stress response, which then puts you at risk for, 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 for food injury. So I, I was going to talk about this a little bit later, but I'll jump on it now because we, you know, the conversation has gone that way. But um, I, I guess my my thoughts on this are that absolutely stress can play a role in all of the ways that you've talked about, you know, psychological stress, but physiological stress as well. But you know, I, I guess there are so many different things that can that can go into injury. There's so many different factors that can be involved that you know often it, it does just come down to dumb luck. I think. You know, you could be as, uh, you know, stress-free psychologically and physically as anybody. And then somebody can just come in and like, you know, two foot tackle you and break your leg because of nothing that you've done. So I guess, I guess what I, what I want to ask is, you know, is there anything that we can do from a psychological point of view that might help prevent injury? 
Uh, is there any way that we can, because Hugh, you, you know, you kind of talked about that balance between relieving stress, but at the same time practicing under stress, you know, and I just wonder what everybody's thoughts are on that. You know, what can we actually do if stress is a big part of injury to, to, to help with that? Um, Pete, yeah, I think some injuries are just dumb luck. I mean, there was a hole in the ground that you didn't see. Um, arguably, we could also say that there was a hole in the ground that you didn't see because your attention was focused on somewhere else. So, I mean, <laughs> right, we can always right. bring it back there. But um, but I, I would argue that there are many injuries that are not just dumb luck, and there are different strategies that we can use to prevent sport injuries from the psychological perspective. Um, and so far, I mean, I'm referring back to the same meta-analysis by Andreas Everson, that there are a lot of interventions that has been used and most of them have been used to really for the stress management and what they found that there was an effect on using interventions such as autogenic training biofeedback mindfulness different kind of stress management strategies that can be useful in terms of preventing the injuries but i think the other thing that is really important particularly if you think about physios and stuff is to understand that big part of any kind of injury prevention methods whether it's like Am I using a mouth guard? Am I using a, um, a helmet? Or am I doing my um, proper sort of, sort of pre-warm-up and like cool-down activities properly? Um, what, all of those things are depending on one's adherence to them. Like, okay, if you're not engaging those behaviors, you're not going to prevent the injury. So a lot of the other kinds of prevention strategies are actually founded in the premise of I need to adhere as in I need to do, as in a behavior in order for this prevention to be helpful or meaningful. And if I don't adhere, then I'm increasing my chances of injury. So often we just see, even think with rehab and stuff, we see these things like, oh, are you doing your home exercises? Well, the, the whole concept is an adherence and adherence is a behavior. And if we are seeing our activities through the behavior lens, then we understand that underlying that is a cognition like, is this worth my time? Is this something I should be doing? As well as emotions related to it. You know, like, I, I don't see this as being relevant. I see this as pointless. Therefore, I'm not going to adhere. Therefore, I'm not engaging in the behaviors that I really need to do. So really, I would argue that, and here's the thing that as a psychologist, I always say that, yeah, you know, you your policy can tell you you need to use a helmet. Um, but really, it's down to my own behavior. Am I going to put that helmet on? And that's a psychological strategy because it is a behavior that is associated with prevention. I'm curious that you mentioned about using protective equipment and, and something I find interesting was that boxers um, get tooth decay and have toothache and then lose training time because of that, because of the amount of time that they wear mouth guards. So for boxers, using the protective equipment can have a drawback. And actually, then they then need more dental care and 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 pre pre uh, screening of the of dental things to actually prevent them losing training for downtime. But then the other thing is like, I always have this argument with people, and it might be politically incorrect, but we might as well go there. Should you wear should you wear a helmet on a bicycle? Because as I understand it, you know if you don't wear a helmet you're less likely to have a fall but obviously if you do have a fall you're more likely to have a less serious fall if you've got an injury and then i'm just left like like what do we do here you know so like i'm what i want to challenge you mona if i make the situation really dangerous does that not mean the athlete will take more care and is less likely to get injured 
I, I like, I'm going to take your challenge and remind <laughs> you that I'm of the generation that never wore a helmet and nobody knew where I was for hours on afternoon. I'm still alive in <laughs> one piece, you know, haven't broken a bone yet. So, so I think I'm going to challenge you on that and saying, but I'm also the parent who has a child who has to wear a helmet and, you know, so, so <laughs> and wore a seatbelt, but I wasn't forced to do that in childhood. So I'm going to take that challenge. And I do think that there's some truth to the fact that, um, you know, we are more alert when we know that we're in a dangerous situation or careful situation that we need to pay care. Um, but I think it's with everything. It's that fine balance between like, what do I need to do to prevent this and protect myself? And what's the risk of what are the potential drawbacks of that? Like, like you said about the boxers and the, mouth guard it's like where is the fine line where is the where is the balance between what can i do to enhance my performance and do that safely and what can i do to prevent these from happening and still do it safely without those different uh protective gears and and i'm not an expert on protective gears but but i also think that you're right like there may be something if we put people in a cotton wool they're never going to realize that the fall may hurt um same thing with kids i would say that um you know i have a child who says i want to climb the tree i'm three years old and then it's two moms one says don't climb the tree don't climb the tree they never learn what it feels like to fall and hurt and get up and then there's the other mom which is the me who says well you can climb but don't climb too high because i can't pick you up and then she climbs too high and then she's like, mom, can you get me? I said, no, I told you I can't, but I can show you a way out, you know, true story. And then she climbs herself back down and she may fall and hurt every so often, but mm -hmm. the fall and hurt is sort of somehow protected by me guiding her in that process. So I think the same analogy goes here, really, that I think they can be useful, but um, using protective gear, but, and, and I think protective gear, and I think that's what we really need to figure out. Where's the balance? Where's the good balance between these and how much I'm going to adhere so that I can still perform and train the best that I can without it affecting me negatively. Okay. So it's about balance and actually we need to be, make a professional judgment or professional decision-making process when we're thinking about how we prevent, manage, uh, these situations of risk. Okay, cool. Cheers for that. Yeah. Um, I'm not wearing a helmet still, though. <laughs> We're here with Dr. Mona Arvinan Barrow and Dr. Damien Clement, two experts on injury, psychology of injury, and we're having a really good conversation uh, about that. Uh, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, don't forget that you can subscribe to the podcast and you can tweet us your comments at EPM Podcast on Twitter. Uh, and maybe let us know some of your most horrific injuries and how you coped with them. How did you respond to them? What did you do? What sort of uh, feelings, emotions did that conjure up? We've heard some from our guests. Uh, I'm interested to know how Hugh felt uh, when he broke his third arm. Um, I'm also interested to know what Hugh's referring to when he's saying he broke his third arm, but we'll not go there. We'll leave that for another time. Um, <laughs> Hugh, you have a question. Pete, I do yes. have a <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on. So my question is, um, I want to know, like, you know, okay, I have just broke my third arm or I've, uh, I've split open my kneecap and actually seen that twice. Um, uh, you know, what's your approaches like 
the injuries just happen. Talk me through, like, what do you think is good practice uh, from, like, the injuries happened to the person's made a good recovery? Uh, and, like, what's the approach from a psych perspective? Okay, you, um, you know, really, really, really good question. So one of the first things, you know, we, and I say we because Mona and I have done a lot of, of research and collaborations in this area, is that we need to acknowledge the fact that, that sport injuries are biopsychosocial in nature. And when we talk about this biopsychosocial in nature, you look at it in terms of the, the, the biology, which would be more the actual, the injury, the, the, the nuts and bolts, the kneecap and the third arm that you were, you were talking about. Um, then you want to look at, there's a psychological component. And then of course, there's a, there's a social component of it as, as well. So if you look at it in terms of that, we believe that that treatment then needs to be interprofessional to ensure that the athlete is addressed in each one of these um, areas. So when we think about it, our role as, as, as sports psychology professionals is that we want to be able to help the sports medicine professionals, um, and that would be the, the physiotherapist, the athletic trainer, the sports therapist, or whomever that would be, to be able to provide holistic care. And one of the things that both Mona and I have in common is that we have a person-centered approach or, or, or more an athlete-centric approach where the athlete needs to be at the center of this, of this care being provided. And we want to make sure that everyone who is working with that individual within that um, um, interdisciplinary team or interprofessional team, as you, as you call it, would be able to provide the best possible care for that athlete making sure you address this injury from a biopsychosocial um, perspective. Okay, so whenever you're saying biopsychosocial, if I was to walk into a room and I was to go like uh, Damien and Mona have, have worked with these uh, athletes uh, in an injury process, what would I see that would, would show me that they've considered you know, the social aspect? And what would I see that shows me they've considered this, the, the psych aspect. Like, paint me a picture here of uh, what it looks like. Okay, good good question, as I said. So when we think of biopsychosocial, so the first thing when I think about bio, that's, you know, biology, for lack of a better word. Help me understand your pain thresholds or your pain levels. How is the pain that you are experiencing right now, how is that going to impact? influence whether or not you're going to adhere to your rehabilitation program. Mona talked a little bit about adherence. And in order for an athlete to, you know, to return to play in a, in a timely fashion, he or she needs to adhere to that rehab program. However, if your pain threshold is low and your rehab program is saying, say you need to do five sets of leg extensions or whatever, but you can't manage the pain associated with that. And now, one thing I want to tell you, there's going to be some pain associated with rehab and not all pain is bad pain. There's some good pain and there's, there's bad pain. Um, but when you think about it, if you can't manage that pain threshold and you can't complete those rehab exercises, assuming that it's not injury pain that's causing your injury to get worse, that could have an influence on whether or not you get back. The additional part that we talk about, the psychological part, um, I think Pete was talking about... Um, we talked about the grief, the grief model. There's lots of emotions that goes on that goes along with being injured. How is the athlete or the individual dealing with those with those emotions? And what influence are those emotions having on their behavior? Because then if those emotions are all negative, then the behavior that follows 
in terms of the adherence, they're probably not going to want to adhere. And the last part that I talk about is, is the social aspect. Say you were the starter on the team, first name on the team sheet. You got injured. Now, all of a sudden, your coach isn't calling on you as as, as, as much. You don't have that status amongst your teammates as, as you used to because you're not out there on the field with them. What effect is that having, once again, on your on your adherence? So those are like three sort of simple examples that I that I kind of like to use when I talk about, about, about biopsychosocial. And I don't know if Mona has any other um, thoughts that she would like to, 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 to put in there with regards to that. Yeah, I think the one thing that I would add to it as well is that if we're looking at that the rehab needs to do the biopsychosocial in nature, then I think we also need to recognize that those people who are part of the rehab team, such as the physio or the AT or whoever, they form a social environment for that particular athlete. So so the ways in which they interact in that process, be it educating them about the biology of the injury or be it educating them about the importance of home exercises and the rehab adherence, for example, that environment itself has a huge impact on how the person will think, feel, and behave during the rehab. And those, we already know that good adherence leads to better rehab outcomes. So your your recovery, your physical and your biological recovery will be improved by having a good adherence to it. So I think we also need to think about as how can we as the team create an environment that fosters the the athlete's sense of autonomy and competence in and and feel like I am being the one who's being cared for. Everybody here is working on my behalf to get me better. You know, they are here to support my journey to become better. Um, and I and I think that that's one of the key things. Like that, we as professionals, regardless of the field that we represent in that, and include and not only just rep- uh, professionals, but the family members and the coaches and the people who are around them. Okay, what can we collectively do? What's my role in here to ensuring that this person's feelings or you know feelings of feelings and thoughts about this rehab are of the kind that's like you know what i can do this and all these here are, all these people here are supporting me i really like how you've broken that down for me the, the pain aspect of it of like good pain and pa- bad pain and, and how does that influence the rehab and adherence but then also the social connections and, and how they're maintained it's kind of like if you you know if you lose if you lose your status or, or you lose those connections like it's kind of like the pruning of dendrites in the brain you know it's been pulled back in your network shrinking when you get injured and actually it's your network that reduces your stress because you share your experiences through that so that's kind of it's interesting you know that it has that compounding effect nearly when we get injured and we lose those social uh connections um and i suppose like the psych aspect of it again like obviously i think that's important but what are your guys' thoughts on on how what's the Sykes rule in you know helping the athlete rehab? And I think you've already maybe um, highlighted that the, the psych is there to help people realize about the biopsychosocial model. But like I assume the psychologist is going to be interacting with the athlete. But how do they interact really specifically with the physio or the docs involved in order to understand and facilitate the process? And what do you think would good proof? To, good practice no good practice what would good practice look like uh, in that yeah um i think that's a great question and i think um probably a lot of the miscommunications that we have about what's my role and what's the physio's role and stuff 
is usually down goes down to when there is problems, it's lack of communication and clarity of the roles. Um, and but I would argue that if you're thinking about like as psychologists, we're great at setting goals. Like we we know how to set goals. We can know how to involve the athlete in it. But the reality is that it's not my job as a psychologist to go and set physical goals for you know injury rehab. It's not my job. It's not sufficient that I go and Google out what is an ankle ligament tear and then I start setting goals for that. Like that is not within my purview. That doesn't mean that I don't know how to set goals. It's just that type of goals are not within my within my field. So I think it really is an important that we recognize that the physio or the athletic trainer has the skill set to really have the knowledge of what's appropriate short-term goals, what's appropriate middle, long-term and middle-term and so forth. Um, so I think we need to work together to make sure that they are setting the goals in a way that is most appropriate for the athlete from a psychological perspective. So I'll give you an example. Um, if there is an athlete who, for example, has high levels of trade anxiety. Um, you know, trade anxious athletes typically want to know everything in advance, but yet that knowledge is going to cause them to freak out, right? So we want to greet them in as close to the reality of today as possible, you know, rather than scaring them off that, oh my God, I don't know the outcome. Because like physios and ATs don't know what the recovery rate is going to be because it's all a little fluid. Um, so I think it's our job as a psychs to help the physios or the strength and conditioning coaches or whoever is setting those goals is say, okay, um, this particular athlete would really benefit from you grounding them on today. So let's focus on small attainable goals. Don't, don't talk too much about what's happening or the unknowns of three weeks. However, to really calm a trade anxious person down, it's also really important that you as the physio give them a little heads up what's happening tomorrow. So, and I, that's, that's actually cases that I've worked a lot with our ATs and our strength and conditioning coaches. I said, when they're in a session, focus on day to day, focus on what's right now. We're focusing on this activity, this leg press, this thing. So let's not go further. And at the end of the session, recount what's happened and say, that's excellent. Tomorrow, we are going to add this one thing to your thing, your, your rehab. Don't talk about what you're adding five days from now, but talk about what's tomorrow. So they have a little bit of time to prepare for it, but not too much so that they don't get anxious of what's in the future. And to me, those kind of things help then me as a psychologist when I'm working them with them. I see them once a week. They see them every day is that if they kind of honing in the same strategies that I'm doing in a psych domain and asking them to work on independently in a week. Well, right now I have two cool minions or co-conspirators or whatever we want to call them working with me to enhance the same point that I'm trying to do in an hour once a week. So that's where I would see our role is that as a psychologist, it's not only our job to provide a context in which the psychology can be implemented in those rehab settings, but also be the guide and help for the, for the physio. Like I get often calls and say, hey, how can I help you? You know. Yeah, I, I think that's a an absolutely fantastic bit of advice. That I think one of the reasons I say that is because physios and athletic trainers and and kind of people, even kind of medics, spend so much time with injured athletes, and the the nature of that relationship, the physical contact in that relationship, means that there's a, a closeness 
that sometimes isn't even there with a psychologist. So I think, you know, the, the advice that you just gave about helping them to deal with some of that emotional content, as well as the practical goal setting skills is absolutely a fantastic advice. The only thing I would add to that, and this is something that I always talk to my sports psychology students and stuff. And I said, I said, injury domain is not mine to claim. It is the domain of the physio. It's the domain of the athletic trainer and so forth. And we as sports psychs, we're just simply lucky to be invited in it. So it's not a privilege. It's not a right. It's a privilege to be part of it. So we need to enter that with the humbleness to say, I am just pleased that you trust me enough. A, to ask my opinion, toss some ideas with me. How can I treat this person better rather than going in there and say, well, I know how to handle psychology and you don't. So I think we, we have to have, the, as a psychologist, the humble nature there. You know, you've really hit on something there that is a, is a strong bit of advice that I give to people, and that is if you want to be a good psych, you have to build a relationship with a physio because chances are they will tell they will tell the physio things that they won't tell you, and then the physio will go, here, you know, go and have a word with them. There's, there's something up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that's that's the one sure way to getting in. And I think it's, it's to do with, like, if you think of um, – human contact and trust. Um, there's a, a model, the SOLAR model of communication and therapy, S-O-L-E-R, uh, which stands for like sit, uh, some something openly, lean in, eye contact. But there's actually another model from nursing, uh, which is called surety. And one of them is actually touch. And I think it's like, because, you know, nurses will come and touch you and they put bandages on and stuff, like that's how you do it. I think it breaks down barriers. And obviously, like we as Sykes, it'd be a bit weird if we just walked up and started touching people. Um, we shouldn't really be doing that. <laughs> but there's the, another thing I want to make that's a really good point that you brought up was that you talked about uh, anxiety and reducing anxiety but providing uncertainty. But what you didn't mention was actually uh, rewarding uh, their achievement and confidence but you did automatically put that into what you said. You never used the word rewarding or promoting their achievement. You said, review the day. And I just thought that was a beautiful way to highlight in here. Look, you've achieved the day where you're moving in a direction. And you, you did that automatically, but you didn't put the label of this will build confidence and this will actually um, show them that they're achieving and help the rehab. But I think that's such an important part is having that achievement in there. So thanks for sharing that and put it, putting it so simply. Damien, I think you wanted to say something. Yeah, yeah, just to kind of echo a little bit of what Mona and uh, Hugh were saying there in terms of the relationship that needs to be developed between the sports psychology professional and the and the athletic training physios because I have a I have a background in both. So my undergraduate work was in athletic training. So for all intents and purposes, I'm a certified athletic trainer as well as a as a sports psychology professional. And one of the things that I used to do from the get go in any sort of consultation was I would connect with the athletic trainer. And I'm connecting with the athletic trainer because I can speak the language, I can speak the jargon, I understand the rehab and I I get all of that. And it was leveraging that relationship that made me more, that made the athletes a little bit more open to, to, to working with me because I could understand when they come and they be like, okay, this is what I got to do today and I have a setback and I can understand and I can speak their language. And I believe it's because the athletes saw my relationship 
with the physio or the athletic trainer, it made it a whole lot more easier for me as I as my career went on for me to go into the athletic training room and I could immediately strike up conversations and we could start working together and the athletes were like, oh yeah, he knows what he's talking about because he's he and the athletic trainers are on the same, we are on the same page. So I just kind of want to echo that. It, it's all about that relationship building because to me, before I even started working with athletes, I was developing those relationships with the athletic trainers. We spent too much time on the sidelines together, um, but it was that relationship that made it a whole lot easier for athletes. To, because remember, and I think we may come to this a little bit, that stigma is still there about working with helping professionals such as, you know, sports psychology professionals. But if they can relate to us and see that we are getting on with their best, but, you know, what could be construed as their best, their closest allies on a, on, on the sports medicine team would be a better trainer. I think that really helped my case and it helped our case as sports psychology professionals to be able to get a foot into, into athletics. You know, Damien, that, that's an excellent point. And I think you're underselling yourself there when you talk about, you know, because you can speak the language, anybody can say the words. The thing is there that they trusted you. Yeah. And that's, that. That's you know, the language is how they trust you because they know that you've you know, paid your dues and, and can speak that language. Uh, that's an excellent point. Uh, I think that really uh, is something maybe a lot of psychs don't do enough of is learning the sport and learning the ways of the sport. Um, I totally agree. And I think that the speaking the language is the biggest thing. I vividly remember when I started first collaborating with our athletic trainers and athletic training faculty here in the U.S., having had a 12-year stint in the U.K., I already spoke a wrong English. I think, you know, we, we go from that <laughs> point. And, and I think it, it is absolutely the key, even to a point that we were discussing of things like, what does an inter word intervention mean to you? How would you define it? What does it mean? What does it entail? And, you know, we came to a conclusion that I, as a psychology, had a very different view than what the athletic trainer had. And then we had to mitigate those differences. And I think that's why I think the, the key point is that as a sports like we got to put in them, and I'm using Damien's word here, we got to put in the FaceTime. We got to be there present. Um, and so, see, Damien, I learned something from you over the last 20 years. <laughs> um, but we got to put in the FaceTime. We got to buy those relations, build those relationships. We have to, again, go in there and say, I am not the expert here. I'm here to learn what you know and what you need me for, um, you know, because you have that access that I don't. I mean, you can tell the athlete to say, come on, take your pants off. I can't say that as a psychologist. <laughs> so, and and so there's we, we, we enter the relationship from a different perspective different point of view already and and that's why i think it's really important that if we as psych want to really get into the injury domain we need to be humble and we need to really listen to what they already know and where they need our support i, I need to do a public service announcement for uh, any of our uk listeners uh mona i think used the term pants as in the american version which means trousers um, before we get and I'm going to clarify yes exactly and so this is the eight years in the US has changed my vocabulary I would have never done that eight years ago when I was still living in the UK so don't let my fake British action fool you with the, the American vocabulary <laughs> okay that's that's good um, I have one more question that I wanted to ask but Pete uh, have no, you no, 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 any no, 
Okay, so I have one more question. Like, I just want to summarize what's been a lovely passage there. Like, guys, give me your give me your top. Um, you know, as a psych, um, I want to know what are the basics that you want sport rehabbers and physios to know because it's very selfishly and shout out to University of Nottingham and physiotherapists and sport rehabbers who I've been lecturing with for the past four or five years and this is now going to be part of your material um some bits might need edited out but (laughs) (laughs) what are your like top three bits of advice and what are your advice for them that you want them to know or what key bits do they need to know uh from from the psychology world Okay, you, you know, wonderful, wonderful question because, you know, just to kind of reiterate the point there is that when you think about it, the physios, athletic trainers, sport, ther- or sport therapists, they spend a tremendous amount of time around injured athletes. So it's it's good for us to kind of be able to give them some some tips and some things from us that that, that they can use with, with injured athletes. But before I get to that, one of the things we need to acknowledge is that in, in looking at the research, the, the literature, and some of the work that we have done, it is, it is clear that physios, athletic trainers, physiotherapists, they need a little, they need a lot more training in terms of the psychological aspect of sport injuries and psycho, the use of psychosocial strategies within sport injury rehab context. So that's the first thing we want to see that they need a little bit more training. And, and I can speak from personal experience because if I think back to my undergraduate working athletic training, I had a psych 101 class and then Probably half of a period and a, and, a, and a class period over in the U.S. was probably about an hour and 15 minutes. So maybe 30 minutes was spent on psych of injury. And that, that was it. That was the extent of my formal education with regards to, to, to psychological aspect of sport injury as, a, as an undergrad. But if I had to give some three, 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 three pieces of advice, you know, the first thing I want the, um, the sport physio uh, to know is they need to educate the injured athlete about their injury. Because more likely than not, an injured athlete, when he or she gets injured, they're going to be freaking out. They're going to think it's the end of the world. My career is over. I'm never going to play again. Am I ever going to get back to, 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 to the level of fitness? So their, their, their freak out meter is from zero to 100. What the athletic trainer or the, the sports physio can do is educate the athlete about, you know, the mechanism of injury. What's the progression in rehab going to be like? What's the return to play process going to be like? What's the potential timeline? And getting that information sometimes helps the athlete to appraise the situation a little bit differently and put everything into perspective. So using the knowledge that they have been trained with from their academic background to educate the athlete about about the injury. Second thing to me is the, the they need to kind of just listen and provide that emotional support to, to, to the athlete. Because when an athlete gets injured, more likely than not, they just kind of want to let it all out. They want to vent, for lack of a better word. So one of the things that I usually like to tell, um, you know, I, actually I tell my kid this a lot, you got two ears and one mouth. So you probably want to listen. <laughs> I mean, now she's four, so she doesn't listen at all, but I, I, you know, two ears and one mouth. You want to you want to listen twice as much as you're as you're talking. So it's just kind of listening to them, let them talk about it, let them get it out. Because as the as the physio, the athletic trainer, physiotherapist, you're the, probably the most trusted one. So they're gonna tell you things that you don't even want to know, 
but you know, just kind of letting them letting them get that out. And then we want you to structure your rehab environment in order to promote competence, autonomy, relatedness. The, the athletic trainer has that ability to set up the rehab environment, set up the rehabilitation program to promote these things amongst it within the athlete to help he or she kind of progress through their, through their rehabilitation. And the last thing, and probably one of the most important things, depending on the severity of the injury and how that person cognitively appraises the situation, the physio athletic trainer, um, they want to be able to recognize signs and symptoms that are indicative of um, something a little bit more going on in the injury and to be able to facilitate that, 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 that referral. Because in some cases, some, most athletes deal with injuries really well. But you know you have that small percentage of the population who, when they get injured, it, it manifests itself into something a little bit more deeper that the athletic trainer is not is not actually um, trained to trained to work with. So to be able to decide to recognize the signs and symptoms and facilitate a referral to the appropriate mental health uh, professional as as need be. So those would be the the things that I would think that um, athletic trainers, physios, um, you know, sports medicine professionals need to at least know and be able to work with from a psychological aspect of, of a sport injury for injured athletes. Motivational interviewing and solution-focused brief therapy uh, seem like ideal skills for physios or sport rehabbers. How would they integrate those into practice and what are your thoughts on those in general? Okay, so well, first thing we, we want to say that those are very and can be very useful strategies for, for, for rehabilitation. But one of the things, uh, and you kind of pointed that out, that we want to highlight there is that in our our work and our research, we found that um, physios, athletic trainers, sports medicine professionals are probably really not trained to actually utilize these skills very, very, very much. So one of the things, obviously, we would want to make sure that they are appropriately trained to, to use these skills. And also, on the other side of it, we don't know if athletes are actually, um, do athletes expect this from an athletic trainer from a physio in, in, in that context. So there's a two, you know, there's two things that you that you want to consider. But we think that these things can actually fit really well with, with goal setting. And and goal setting is something that athletic trainers, physios, sports therapists, they use, they use very well. So we see these two skills fitting very well within the context of what an athletic trainer physio does. But I want to come back again to say they need to make sure they have the appropriate training in order to be able to utilize these skills. Cool. I think, I mean, that's always the concern of teaching people psychology. They don't have a psychology underpinning uh, where they step outside the control. So, I mean, and yeah, great, great answer, Damien. Thanks very much for that. Um, we're here with uh, Mona Arvin and Barrow and Damien Clement. I'm getting better at that as I go along, aren't I? You are, absolutely. <laughs> um, and we're talking all things injury. So we've talked about stress and the role that stress plays in injury. And we have talked about um, what the psychologist can do or the role that psychologists might play in conjunction with the physio, the athletic trainer, the, the sports medicine team. Um, and we've heard some absolutely fantastic advice. Um, 
we focus quite a lot on injury onset and the process of going through rehab. But I had an MSc student a few years back who was interested in something called kinesiophobia, which is the fear of pain from movement. And she was interested in whether that might have applications in sport, whether it might delay athletes in the return to play phase. That is, they're medically fit to play, but psychologically, they're not quite there. And then we've got things like re-injury anxiety as well. And I just, I wonder in your experience, is it fair to say that the, the psychological element of just getting back on the field, just, you know, making the transition from the physio table to the court or the field, is that underestimated, the, the sort of psychological uh, component of that? Um, I would say absolutely. And I think you bring up a really great point. And before I kind of answer that broadly, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the kinesiophobia because, or the fear of pain and from movement, as you, as you talked about, that is actually a very specific psychological construct that is not really extensively studied in a sport injury setting, um, but it has gained a lot more interest in things like chronic lower back pain conditions or mm -hmm. people with uh, patellofemoral pain. So it's been a, it's been a, a specific construct talked about that. Um, well, we also know that if we put him back into the sport injury, it's often used very interchangeably with terms like fear of re-injury or re-injury mm -hmm. anxiety, which from a psychological perspective, to me, it's a little problematic because the ways in which I would treat one's fear is very different how I would treat one's anxiety. So, you know, thinking about desensitizations and so forth. So I think there is um, there's a little bit of a, a misconstrued ideas and that we've kind of focused on this, what I would say, quite extreme psychological response, when in fact that there are lots of other responses that are part of the return to participation. So to answer the second question, like what are those things and what's happening, I would say that the psychological element to getting back to sport is something that is not really considered. A lot of ATs or a lot of PTs ask these questions, how on a scale of one to 10, how ready do you feel to return to sport or something like that? but really don't always consider that, that that process of returning back has multiple different emotions and, and thoughts. And those are, and they can go from like the zero to hero again. They can go like from up and down. Um, what we really know is things like it's, it's not uncommon for an athlete to feel simultaneously anxiety and excitement. Like they can be excited about going back yet feel a little bit of nerves that go with it or more. It's also not uncommon to somebody feel worried about going back, but also feeling extremely grateful about the fact that they can go back. Um, and I think, you know, there's pieces of where there's doubts or lack of confidence. And I don't necessarily want to use the word lack of confidence because confidence can be extremely trait-based too. So there may be situational specific lack of confidence on my injured body part, or how does it feel to do this movement again, um, which can then trigger the anxiety that may be there. So, so there's, there's a lots of different responses to that situation, I think. And I think the key here is to really ensure is that when an athlete is about to return back to sport, the rehab process really should have addressed all those factors that may have led to the injury to happen in the first place, be it a physical or be it a psychological. So, you know, we have strengthened the muscles around the injured body part. We have made sure that the rehab has addressed things that the person can return safely 
and not come back onto the rehab, if that makes sense. And so if there was a stressor, which was psychological or a thought that was psychological reason why the injury happened in the first place, that should have been addressed along the way during the rehab. So when they are returning back to sport, they're more likely to return safely because they know they now have tools and skills to actually deal with those things when those situations occur. Um, and just to add to that, I think one of the strategies that I really like to use and which they can practice during rehab is that we have to remember that every time a physio or an athletic trainer asks the, the athlete to move from one stage to another. So, for example, we've now done range of motion, then we go to strength strength pause, and you're going to ask them to engage in different kind of treatment modalities. But from a psychological perspective, you're really asking them to engage in new behaviors. And those new behaviors will elicit new emotional responses and new cognitive appraisals, such as, am I ready? What if my knee can't hold? What if my ankle can't hold? So the rehab professional needs to understand that, okay, I'm asking them to engage in new behaviors. This is a new step that they're taking in their goal setting ladder or whatever that is. Um, so I think it's really important that during those moments, we give the athlete autonomy to say, okay, this is what I need you to do. So we're going from two-legged, you know, ankle work, whatever, to one-legged one. Take your time. Take your time to find that you're comfortable. Use visualization. Do whatever you need to do that you have calmed your nervous system down to a point that you feel comfortable doing this activity rather than saying, go for it, go for it. So that couple of seconds may actually make a world of difference. And that same thing in my mind, through the rehab that has been practiced, now when you return into sport, filters back there. It's like, okay, I'm back in the field. Before I go and do this move on the field, I need to take my time so that I know I'm ready to try it for the first time. Does that kind of make sense a little bit <laughs> in terms of how I think it kind of plays a role there? Yeah, no, absolutely. Damien, do you, do you have any and, thoughts and, on that? And well? one of the things that, you know, just keeping in consistent with the last question that we were talking about in terms of what, you know, the physios and the athletic trainers can do. One of the things that I always like to also introduce to that population is is, is confidence. And you look at confidence in, in, in three areas. I look at it in terms of for the athlete, their physical confidence, their program confidence, and their return to sport confidence. So when you talk about physical confidence is do they have the athletic trainer work with the athlete to develop their physical confidence in that injured body part? Has he or she done, you know, progressed them through rehab and got them to the point where they can do sports specific skills that are that are applicable to their actual sport and they feel confident that they that, you know, their knee can hold up to, to cut in, to stop in, to, you know, all that sort of stuff. So building up that physical mm -hmm. confidence. Then you talk about program confidence. Does the athlete feel that the rehabilitation program that they are working on with the athletic trainer, do they feel that this is going to get them back to the field of play? Because if the athlete doesn't have buy-in to the athletic trainer, to, 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 the athlete, to the program, it could be as good as gold. If they don't buy into it, then it, it, it's, there's a likelihood that it, it's not going to work and they're not going to get back. So once again, you're talking about that um, psychological element. And then the last part is that return to sport confidence that Mona was what, what, was talking about. Do they have the, the faith and the trust that they can get back there just based on their physical healing, the rehabilitation program, and the progress that they're making? So these are some little things that the 
athletic trainer or the sports physio can can work with the athlete and they can implement within their program to help build these confidence levels in these three particular areas that could help make that transition back to to, to feel a player, sport a player, or, or, or back to participation just a little bit easier while taking into cog- while being cognizant of that psychological element. But there's a lot of bravado as well when it comes to sports injury. Um, you know, playing through injury somehow a badge of honor. I know in my kind of playing career, uh, there was a lot of kudos associated to playing with injury. Um, you know, and, and it's often seen as something that's that's. Uh, I guess, to be rewarded rather than something that's potentially immensely stupid. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure to return from injury, uh, maybe too soon, especially at the elite level when there's careers on the line. Um, how do we as uh, psychologists, as athletes, coaches, uh, you know, any professionals working in sport, how do we navigate through all of that macho crap around injury? You know, how do we, you know, what, what, what can we do? I think you brought up a really important point, and I think cultural sport matters when it comes to the injuries. Um, the ways in which we like to look at this is to kind of see it in from the, this way that, you know, if you think about sports performance enhancement, it's essentially a fine balance between intentional physical and psychological overtraining or overreaching and rest and recovery, right? So we're trying to physiologically and psychologically increase our performance by pushing us to the limit, hoping that the consequence is a performance enhancement rather than an injury, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and then if, if that's our foundation, then we can also say that, well, if somebody doesn't do that right and they they basically get injured. Well, an injured athlete is no good. They can't train. They can't play. It's actually a cost effect. It's, it's, it's a cost for the club, especially at the elite level. So I think if we kind of shift our focus away from thinking about injuries as something I got to play through the, uh, the, the pain and shift it to a way that actually all of our performance enhancement that we do should be done through the lens of injury prevention. So we are trying to train and enhance the performance through the lens of let's protect them from injuries while we do that. Because the reality is they will all get injured at some point. There is not a person who wouldn't. But if we shifted our focus to that, that how do we make sure that we get the best maximized things out of our athletes while trying not to get them injured, then I think when they do get injured, the mindset has already shifted to a point that, okay, so this rehab is also part of injury prevention because ultimately the goal for any club or any who wants to make an investment on this you know, person has to understand that all days out of sport are going to cost them. And if they then put them back a little too early, the cost of that being out and they get re-injured, the cost is just going to exponentially go higher. I mean, it's kind of like, we have to put in the investment on injury prevention before the injury even happens in order to have a post-injury responses that are healthy for the athlete and not trying to get them to play through pain. Because ultimately, withdrawing from one day when you have a little niggle before the actual injury happened can actually be less costly for the organization than making them play through that pain. And then the next day, the, the physiological stress that Hugh talked about actually amounted to a point that happened what happened to Damien, right? So I think we have to shift our mindset in this whole thing about 
what is performance enhancement and how does injury prevention play a role in that? And I think if we bring in money, it's always a good way to, you know, <laughs> like how many days did we save by making sure that they had a rest day when they needed or really understanding the balance between overtraining and rest and recovery. And we know from the limited literature that is there that that rest and recovery needs can be very different between different athletes. So I would say that in order to change this culture, we really need to change the ways in which we see performance enhancement. So I, I, I'm interested because, you know, we're talking there about, and I, I probably, you know, I, I mentioned elite sport, but, you know, what about the lower level sport? What about people where there isn't so much money involved? You know, the, the stakes aren't quite so high. Um, you know, people playing at club level mm-hmm. who are potentially putting themselves at risk of sustaining a, perhaps a worse injury because of this. And, and, you know, maybe we're getting into something that's a much broader problem in sport itself here. Um, but you know, how do we, how do we, how do we tackle that? How do we navigate it? This kind of macho-ness around injury, you know, what can we say to people who, I don't know, high school athletes, collegiate athletes, you know, what, what do we say to those people and those coaches as well? Because the coaches often have a role in, um, not even necessarily directly, but certainly pressuring athletes to to maybe uh, it's it's just a little niggle. You be you play through that. Um, you know how can, how can we how can we tackle some of that? And and I think I absolutely think that's a big thing that you know there needs to be the the mentality shift in the even the grassroots soccer coaches or whatever sport it is is to really understand that piece from a very young young age and and often I I always say and and then there needs to be a parent education. You know, often it's like the, you know, if we think about what are typical symptoms of overtraining or burnout, um, a lot of those are shifts in mood, inability to sleep, loss of appetite. So things that coaches and physios may not see in the lower levels, but parents do. Like, you know that your child is completely change the ways in which they normally behave at home. Um, you realize that they're no longer eating as well, but most of us is, and, or they, you know that they have a lot of pressure from school and then the sport is just adding to that pressure. So I think it would be really important to really educate the parents and give the parents some autonomy to say, okay, I'm seeing these changes in my child now, which is unusual behavior. Maybe we need two or three days off just so they can kind of like in our household, we call them the catch-up days, that there are days when it's like right now, even not going to school is important. You know, you're going to catch up on everything and that starts with sleep. Then you may have extra homework to do, but you know what? You can do it at your own time. So again, give the athlete sense of autonomy, competence, and relatedness that, A, I understand what you're going through and you have the autonomy to say, this is too much right now. I need a break. That's, uh, I'm, I'm really impressed with the idea of catch-up days. Um, and, you know, that, that to me sounds like I wish I had parents who had catch-up days for me. Um, but <laughs> I'm not going to criticize the parents in the podcast. Um, but but um, I, do, I do like this idea of, like, you know, a bit of compassion to how people feel and, you know, being honest with themselves. But I, I'm going to throw a question here to you, Pete, and also Damien as well, of what you've just asked about this machiness. And, and Mona, maybe maybe you've got some insight as well. Is there a difference between this macho thing of, you know, play on for the team? Is it different in team sports versus individual sports? Um, because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Damien in, injuring himself in uh, the Penelope. 
penultimate race. Like if he had a niggle, I, I don't know, Damien, maybe you wouldn't have raced. And is there a difference here between team sports and individual sports? And do people need to be aware of those cultures for protecting injury? I'm just going to throw that open to you as all because I, I don't know. On the surface, I want to see there is a difference. My first instinct is to see there is a difference because when you think about a team sport, you know, you're on the team, you're on the field, everyone's there, everyone's playing, you're, you're, you're trying to win and you have that immediate, enough peer pressure is the word I want to say, but you have that immediate pressure from, from those from those around you. I don't know, given, given the day and age that we're living in today, I feel that sports or athletes have been so indoctrinated that, you know, the no pain, no gain, you have to play through the pain. If you can't play through the pain, then something's wrong with you. You don't want it enough. You don't have the passion and the desire to win and and, and people start questioning your commitment to your sport. So I'm going to go on a limb and say that I don't think it matters whether or not it's individual or, 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 or team sports. I feel that the culture that we're in and the day and age that we're living in I feel that that's, athletes feel that that's what they need to do in order to prove their commitment to their sport, regardless of the level, I think, because I feel like you see this from the real little ones all the way up to the professional level. So that's my thing. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And, you know, what you're talking about there really is the sport ethic, yeah. um, the kind of sociological construct this idea that real athletes play through pain real athletes do this real you know and and i i totally agree those pressures are there just because of the culture perhaps of sport in itself but i think maybe the differences between team and individual sports are that maybe the pressures just come from slightly different places so you know i played a team sport i played basketball and you know it was kind of all a little bit jokey but at the same time, it was like, oh, what's the matter with you? You know, you can play through that. He's like, dude, I can't, I literally can't walk. Like my back is done. It's like, ah, what's the matter with you? So, you know, it's 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 done in a kind of like jokey way, but the pressures are still there. Uh, and you kind of feel a little bit of guilt, you know, well, I, I should play, I can play. Uh, and I remember doing it. I remember playing in games when I, I shouldn't have played at all. Um, I, I, I should have sat out, but partly because I wanted to and partly because you feel like you're letting your teammates down almost if you're not playing, you kind of just sit up and give it a go because that's what real athletes do. Um, so even though, you know, I'm, I'm aware that that's what's happening, I'm still susceptible to that, that, that pressure, yeah. And, and I'm an individual sport athlete, so I'm a former figure skater. And, and I would still say that it's the same thing. You, you know, in that sport, you don't have too many opportunities to compete in a year. Like, you know, there's certain things and that's the one you qualify for nationals or whatever. It, it doesn't matter how sick you are. You're going to go and do it because otherwise mm-hmm. you just lost that season. Um, and then the psychologist in me listening to all all of you say is like, well, it all comes down to how we appraise that situation we're in, really. And and it depends on so many different variables, our personalities, how much effort we're willing to put into it anyway. So again, we're going back to like, what does this mean to me? Like, is it worth my while? Am I willing to risk everything for mm-hmm. this injury or just like, is this injury, I'm going to put it aside because the other stuff that I want means more to me. You know, so I think it's it's there combined, right? And then just to throw the curveball in this, given the recent um, you know, recently concussions, head injuries, 
and those type of injuries have come forth. And when you think about the concussion and head injury, physically, for the most part, you look good. There's no broken bone. You're not on a crutches. You're not limping. And it's only up until recently where we began to really understand and take concussions and head injuries seriously. You used to have athletes mm-hmm. playing through that stuff. You know, you got dinged. You got your bell rung. So what? Just continue going on there. But, you know, because we've begun educating athletes, parents, coaches, media about it now, now you're seeing, now, you know, now you see they stop games now, you know, soccer games, football, they stop the game if there's a head injury. And if an athlete comes off because of a head injury, now there's no, why is he not playing? He should be. So it, it's a culture change and a societal change that could happen. And, 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 and a small example of that was how we, how we deal with, with, with head injuries now. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that in terms of culture change, because I think we're seeing some sports where there, there, there really is that culture change. You know, I'm thinking of rugby over here where any hint of a head injury, like you're, you're out, you're done. You know, you go and have your head injury assessment, et cetera. But whereas, you know, I'm watching like American football games. I'm going to call out American football here. I'm watching college <laughs> games. And I can see from my television, you know, from 3,000 miles away, watching on a TV screen, I can see that somebody is concussed. And yet they're coming over to the sidelines and the coach is turning them around and pushing them back out onto the field. So I think you're absolutely right. You know, culturally, we are uh, perhaps moving in the right direction, but there are some sports that are maybe slower to do that than others. Okay, so I mean, guys, excellent, uh, excellent insights there, and I think you know it's amazing we're talking about culture on a podcast to do with injury. Um, I suppose I do have something that I want to ask, and and this is maybe something again, it's just slightly outside the realm of injury, but a friend of mine, Alex Mardan, uh, who's actually a Romanian uh, four hundred meter sprinter, um, and competed at the World Championships, uh, and a sports psych who's up in Newcastle. So shout out to you, Alex, if you're listening. Um, I'm never going to forget the day he, he turned around to me and he said, because he's obviously had a, you know, a, a career as an athlete and you know he's, he's battered himself, competed at World Championships and whatever else, and World Masters. And he turned around to me and he said, Hugh, if I wake up in the morning and I don't feel pain, I would seriously have to consider the thought that I might be dead. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know i think you know, this to me it talks about the cost um the cost of being an elite athlete and there's a great documentary um on i think finnish um finnish olympians uh, and it's called the price of gold and about the the chronic injuries they have um so and it's worth watching for any of our listeners but my question is like what do we do if somebody has long-term chronic pain, chronic injury, that isn't the thing that's going away, that's something they have to manage uh, throughout their career? Uh, for some athletes, that's a reality, uh, and also for a lot of people in, in healthcare. So, like, what's your what's your approach or your, what advice for, as psychs would you give to people who are managing um, chronic injury that's not, go, not something that's curable? Um, I'd love to hear your opinions on that. Um, I think that's an interesting point and a really, really interesting area for sports psychology. But before I get to that, I'm going to say anything about Finnish. My native country is always worth watching, really, because I've been <laughs> thinking about that. Um, I think um, 
so if I look at the 40 years of research that we've done in psychosport injuries, it has had a very much focus on the acute injuries and not so much of the chronic injuries. Um, and I think the big difference between the two is the chronic conditions, the pain, which I would consider are psychophysiological constructs. So it has a physiological symptoms that are then interpreted psychologically. Like, what does this mean? My pain tolerance, my perception of pain and awful. Um, you know, the pain, I think, plays a different role in chronic injuries than it does in acute injuries. Because often with acute injuries, you kind of know that there will be a point when this will be over, when this is kind of, I don't know when, but there will be a point when this will be stopped and I'm out of the pain. Whereas with chronic, the the end outcome of being pain-free may not be an option. And, or even if it is, it's so long-term out that nobody really knows. So I think that's a that's a big factor that kind of, to me, underpins the ways in which I, as a sports psych, would respond to that. Equally, kind of like with concussions, chronic, chronic pain, if somebody has chronic lower back pain or knee pain, it's kind of invisible too. I mean, we can see an ACL and then somebody's on crutches, but with a lot of chronic pain conditions, we may, may not see that the person is in pain. Like it's, it's invisible, kind of like the concussion. So to me, that shifts the ways in which society views those conditions over the overt, yeah, I've got a cast, I'm a hero because I play through the pain and, you know, my shin just broke into half kind of thing. <laughs> Whereas chronic pain is not something that is seen. I was like, well, what's wrong with you? On, on how I look at you, you look normal. I kind of like the concussion. So I think that to me is an important premise to have when as a psychologist, I'm thinking about how am I approaching these types of injuries? And frankly, again, it starts with what does this mean to you? How is that affecting your life? How is that affecting the things that you do normally? Is that a pain that you will, is that a like a compromise you're willing to give on your life because of this pain? So, so there is a piece of that that we have to kind of use, you know, acceptance commitment the, um, therapy a little bit is that, you know, we're going to have to accept this as new normal. Doesn't mean that it's normal forever, but right now this is a new normal. So like with everything in my mind, if you take the person-centered and humanistic approach that Damon mentioned earlier that we both do for our practice, it starts from the question, what does this pain, what does this chronic condition mean to you? How it affects you? And what can we do to get you to a accept it in some ways and then find pieces that you can then enhance your quality of life. Right. So we're almost at the end. I hope you're enjoying what you're hearing today on this episode of 80% Mental we're with Dr. Mona Arvinen Barrow and Dr. Damien Clement, and we've been talking about injury. But we're going to finish off with a little bit of a quick fire Q&A. I'd like to get one piece of advice from you. And I'm going to give you a couple of different scenarios, a couple of different circumstances, and one bit of advice for an athlete, a coach, physio or athletic trainer, and maybe a psychologist as well. Uh, and this can be something specific that you might say, or it can be something you think that person might be looking out for, or whatever you think might be relevant. So when an athlete first gets injured, what one piece of advice would you give to the athlete themselves? I would tell them to breathe and exhale and say that let's calm you down, let's calm your nervous, central nervous system down so your physio can effectively evaluate the extent of your injuries. And the coach? I'd say stay calm, 
reassure the athlete that you are there to support them. Physio? Stay calm, take cues from the athlete and do your thing. You are the expert in a situation and everyone else takes leads from you. And the psychologist? Stay calm, support the athlete and the physio as they need you to. We got this. So calmness is, is the word of the day for injury onset from everybody involved. Stay calm and breathe. I like that. Okay, when an athlete's going through rehabilitation, so maybe they're post-surgery, um, just starting the process of rehabilitating, what would you say, again, to the athlete themselves? You know, this may not be the staircase you intended to climb towards your goals, but it's a staircase nevertheless that can take you to your goal one step at the time. Oh, I like that. What about the coach? Know your, know your injured athlete's current restrictions. How can you integrate them to the team? Physio? Uh, well, they get two. Sorry, I'm not sticking with one. The first one is when Rule breaker. you have a plan and how you intend to execute it, ask yourself, in what ways is my plan enhancing the athlete's sense of competence, autonomy, and relatedness? The second one, remember, every time you ask the athlete to try new things, such as a move from a range of motion activities to strength-building activities, you're asking them to engage in new behaviors. That will elicit new thoughts and new emotions about what's being asked of them, and not always are the athletes ready for that change. Okay. And what about the psychologist? What advice would you give to them? When working with an injured athlete, how can the physio and the strength and conditioning coaches reinforce the work you do with the athlete in your office while working with them in the treatment room? Okay, wonderful. So again, we're hearing that holistic approach. Hearing that, I just dropped my pen on the table. So again, we're hearing that holistic uh, approach to to working with the uh, the athlete and the whole the whole team as well. Um, what about? The return to play phase when an athlete's just on the brink of getting back on the field you know what advice would you have again let's start with the athlete breathe exhale take your time when embarking on these new activities take your time in visualizing and breathing to ensure that you are ready to try the new activity awesome and what about the coach allow the athlete to lead the way ask yourself in what ways can I enhance this athlete's sense of competence, autonomy, and relatedness to return back to sport? The physio? Same thing. Allow the athlete to lead the way and ask yourself, in what ways am I enhancing the athlete's sense of competence, autonomy, and relatedness to return back to sport? And then finally, the psychologist. So once again, allow the athlete to lead the way. Ask yourself. In what ways am I enhancing the athlete's sense of competence, autonomy, and relatedness to return back to sport? I'm liking this because there's themes emerging from each of these. I mean, it's really clear themes. So the first bit is about staying calm when an athlete gets injured. The second bit is about this holistic approach. And then I, I really like this idea, let the athlete lead the way. I think that's a wonderful phrase um, for everybody involved in, in, in helping an athlete to return from injury. Um, Finally, when a manager's out running and trips over a tree branch in the forest and dislocates his shoulder in the middle of a World Cup. All right, this was a bit harder, but now <laughs> I'm going to start with the coach because he's now the injured patient. Um, and the, the response to the coach would be, breathe, exhale, let's calm you down so you're, we can understand your central nervous system, it's calm, and so the physio can effectively evaluate your injuries. And what about the athletes? You know, you got this. You've worked hard to get here and you're ready. 
coach wants you to focus on your game and to do the job he knows you can do. And what about the psychologist involved here? I'll take that one. So psychologists, stay calm, support the injured coach, the physio, and the athletes as they need you to be. You got this. Yeah, the physio, just stay calm, take cues from the coach, and do your thing. You're the expert in this situation, and everyone else takes the lead from you. I love that. I love that you have uh, answered that that question. Um, well, I guess w- we don't really have anything left. Uh, this has been my favorite episode ever. Um, you say that on, to Hugh, everybody. Hugh, you're going to say something. <laughs> well, guys, uh, I just want to say, like, uh, to summarize this for me, what I'm taking away from you guys is that stress affects risk of injury. An injury affects risk of stress. It's maybe something that I haven't really fully, you know, joined up that circle for myself. So thanks for doing that for me today. And I also particularly like how you explained the, the biopsychosocial model, and, and that's really helped me. So like, it de- definitely made a big impact on how I'm perceiving injury and how I'm thinking about it, um, and has made a difference to my practice. So I just want to say thank you very much for that. Uh, it's it's a massive takeaway for me, and I think that today's podcast is going down in history. This might be top of the charts whenever we do top of the charts in season five, Pete. Five? <laughs> yeah. Good grief. Um, now, honestly, uh, thank you so much, both of you, uh, for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Um, and yeah, my favorite episode so far. So thank you to Dr. Mona Arvinen Barrow. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. It's been an absolute pleasure for me to be here today. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you to Dr. Damien Clement. Same here. Really, really enjoyed it. This was a blast. No, thank you. Um, so we've heard a lot of things today. We've heard about, well, the question we started off with was how can psychology help with uh, injury? And we've heard a lot about the role of stress in injury onset, how we might appraise or think about injuries can be important in how we respond to them. Um, and the sort of emotions that we might uh, experience, the the ways that we might respond to injuries. We've talked about how we might work with injured athletes, and uh, Damien discussed the importance of this holistic approach. And we've heard that again as a theme that's come through the podcast today. And we've talked about managing anxieties about getting back on the field as well. And we also talked about this culture of sport uh, and playing through injury and chronic pain. So we've covered a lot of ground, and I think we've answered the question that we that we set out to answer. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard today. If you have any thoughts about, uh, injury, if you've experienced an injury, and uh, want to let us know how you responded to it. If you've, uh, gone through rehab, and uh, want to let us know what helped you through that process or maybe what hindered that process, then let us know. You can comment on the website, www.80percentmental.com, or you can tweet us at EPM podcast. Uh, And we'd love to hear your thoughts about uh, anything to do with injury or about anything that our two guests have said today. Um, So I hope you have enjoyed it and I will see you next time. I won't see you because it's a podcast. 80% 